And tonight is one of those questions that is definitely a, a difficult question, which oftentimes is phrased like this, why would a loving God send people to hell? And so let's uh, think about hell tonight. And when you think about hell, what comes to your mind? It might be humorous things. I mean, some people think about hell humorously. There's lots of uh, cartoons or whether it's The Simpsons or Family Guy or South Park or Far Side cartoons. I know that's dated, but I mean, just all, all sorts of things like that that always kind of make fun of hell. Maybe it's maybe when you think of hell, you think of just kind of funny cartoonish type things. Or maybe you think of something really scary, so things more from scary movies and demons and devils and kind of just horrible screams and, you know, there's... Um, some Christian organizations that do things called hell houses, which is you, it's basically a haunted house, but you walk through it and it's like hell. Um, so maybe you think of kind of scary type images, or maybe you think of, maybe it's just kind of disgusting to you in the sense of just, that's a horror. I mean, the guy that made that video, it's just a horrible type of idea. Just the idea of hell is horrible. Maybe, maybe it's horrible. All right here. All right. Maybe it's horrible because um, because it's something that you think about um, that just seems like a bad idea. Like how how could a loving God bring so much wrath and so much punishment? Those things don't seem to go together. How how could this loving person that's supposed to be this all loving being cause such torment and such destruction? So maybe when you think of hell, it's just a, a horrible idea. It's something that just disgusts you, or maybe it's just kind of emotionally difficult. Um, if there's a hell, then that means there's people in it, right? And if there's people in it, it's probably some people that we know that are there or will be there. And so just that kind of idea can be a really repulsive idea to think, man, are, are you telling me that my cousin, are you telling me that my aunt, are you telling me that my friend are you telling me that this lady that lived across the street from me who is really kind and really gentle, are you telling I mean, just it can be a really emotionally difficult idea to grasp, even if logically we could kind of make our way through it and make sense of it, just emotionally it's something that could be detestable to us. Or maybe if you're a Christian, it's just something that you believe in, but you just don't even really think about. It's just something that's kind of ignored um, sure, yeah, there's a heaven, there's a hell, but does it really make any sort of difference in our life? Does it really, I'm, I'm not going there, so why do I even care about it? Why does it even really matter? And I think that's where a lot of Christians would be, or a lot of people that believe in God would be, is just kind of ignoring hell. Um, if you look at statistics, statistically more people believe in heaven than believe in hell, but there's still a large amount of people that actually believe in hell, but I think one of the studies I saw was like 57 or 60% of people believe in hell. But about, I mean, there's only like a small minority percentage that think they're going there. So, I mean, a good chunk of people believe in hell, but nobody really thinks they're going there, of course. Um, but it's just something that's kind of ignored. It doesn't have a lot of necessarily, oh, okay, since there's a hell, this affects this part of my life and this part of my life. I mean, I, I would even say that it's not something that, that I give a lot of thought to. And, and really, man, what, what's the use 
of the doctrine of hell? What's the use of belief in hell? So hell's not a really popular idea. And I think wherever you are on the spectrum, whether it's just kind of laughable or scary or detestable or ignored, it's not something that's really popular, right? It's not something that we go, oh yeah, you know what my favorite part of the Bible is? Hell. That just gets me so excited. I mean, if that's you, that's a little creepy, right? I mean, that's not, that's not something that, gets, that, that we even really think about much or has much use. But here's what's really interesting. Jesus talks about hell twice as much as he talks about heaven. Twice, more than twice as much as he talks about heaven. Like Jesus talked a lot about hell. So that must mean there's something important about it. There's something even useful about belief in hell. And, and here's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to answer the question, why would a loving God send people to hell? I want to, I want to look at that. But I also want us to understand more in depth why understanding, why belief in, why the doctrine of hell is actually really helpful for our lives. Why coming to understand more about hell is actually a really helpful thing. And I think that that's important because obviously Jesus thought it was important. Like if you're a Christian, most of us would probably say, yeah, understanding heaven has some sort of bearing on our life today. Maybe if you're going through suffering and you think, man, if there's a heaven, okay, there's going to be a better place or it brings comfort in death. Or, and there's all sorts of things that you could probably make a list of of why heaven can, is a helpful doctrine to understand and to believe in. And yet Jesus said, man, I'm going to spend actually more time talking about hell than I am about heaven. And so I just think that that means there must be something really important about it. It must be really helpful about it even for our lives. Even if, so if you're not a Christian, and you say, I don't believe in hell. Hopefully we can explore this idea a little bit more. But if you are a Christian, I think understanding hell actually has a lot of bearing on our practical everyday life. Okay? So this is what we're going to talk about. And to begin with, let's look at this question. How could a loving God punish people? Because sometimes when we think about hell, it's just that idea to begin with that doesn't really even make sense for some people. It can be just an initial barrier to even thinking about the idea of hell is, okay, the Christian God is this God of love. He's all love and he's all mercy. And yet you're saying that he's going to torment and torture and punish people forever. So how do those fit together? And can they fit together? Are they mutually exclusive? Are those contradictory? I mean, do those, can those things even coexist? Can we say all loving God and a God that will punish people if they don't love him? I mean, it seems a little weird. It seems kind of like a stalker boyfriend that says, love me, love me, love me. And if you don't love me, I'm going to lock you in my dungeon, right? It seems a little psychotic almost. I think in that video he was saying that that seems a little, that doesn't seem like love. That seems like somebody that's got some big problems. Love me or I'll torture you. Like that's a sweet Valentine's Day card, right? So can these even exist together? Can a God of love and a God of mercy even exist with a God that punishes, with a God of wrath, the God of anger? Can those even exist? Is that something that even fits together? So to answer that question, I want to just kind of make a few observations and a few statements that build on one another. And the first one is this. 
that in our culture, so America, Denver, in Western civilization, this idea of a God that punishes or a God of wrath or a God of anger is something we don't like. It's something that we would go, if God is like that, I, I don't think I could believe in that kind of God. But in other cultures, that's not a problem. Like if I was preaching this sermon in some other cultural context, it might be, how could God forgive people? Like that can actually be a bigger deal. They get a God of justice, a God of wrath, a God of anger, a God that punishes. They get that, but a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God that gives people things they don't deserve, a God that forgives people's sins no matter where they are on the spectrum, that seems offensive. That would be one of the top questions and objections that they would have. So that doesn't prove anything. My, my only point with that is just to say this, that in our Western civilization, this is a big question for us. In other civilizations and other cultures, it would be actually forgiveness and grace and mercy, which are things that we over here love and value and think are, oh, of course that goes with God. So what I'm saying is we have to kind of step outside of our culture and say, in every culture, in every civilization, in every country, in every individual, there's going to be things about God that we go, that doesn't seem like that fits. But we can't just say, but because it doesn't fit with what I think it is, therefore must not be true. Because in another culture, they would say, actually, that fits exactly with what I believe in, and your God of forgiveness is not true. So here's the point with that. The point is just that our beliefs often are culturally influenced, and so we shouldn't let that purely determine what we believe. Okay, that's just step one. But the second thing I want to say is this. We know. We know. Even if we think about it with God, and we, we don't like the idea, we do know that love and punishment coexist. We know that. I mean, any, anyone that has children and is a parent and disciplines their child knows that. And anyone that doesn't have children or does have children and observes parents that don't discipline their children knows that you think that parent should discipline that child. Because we know that love and punishment, that love and discipline, that love and anger can coexist. Or think about it this way. I don't know what um, kind of what your life was like in school growing up or... or um, or, I mean, just, just think if you can just do kind of a mind experiment. But think about when there's a kid, one kid at a school that's bullying another kid. There's one kid at school that's bullying another kid. Maybe this happened to you, or maybe you just can think about it. If that kid goes and tells their parents, hey, I was getting bullied by this meanie over here, okay, using child language. This, this guy was bullying me. And the teacher's not going to do anything about it because the teacher doesn't believe in discipline, doesn't believe in punishment. They're, they're just an all-loving teacher. As a parent, you would think, that's not right. That is not right. I want to protect those that I love. When those I love are harmed, when those I love are damaged, when those I love are, are um, done, when evil is done against those that I love, there should be some sort of punishment for that that fits. Okay, but even... Even deeper than that, what I want to say is this, that we, not just, not just the other cultures thing, and not just that we already know that love and punishment can fit together, 
But the reality is that we all long for justice, right? I mean, we all long for justice. That's true just on an individual level. Um, If you're driving in traffic and let's say somebody cuts you off and then for whatever reason, so just, I mean, this has happened to you, I'm sure, maybe even on the way here. Somebody cuts you off and then maybe they get stuck in the intersection between lights, right? And then the light turns and they're stuck and they can't move and the other cars on this side are honking at them. You're kind of happy, right? See? Yeah. Because you believe in justice. You want them to get honked at. You want them to experience. You, I mean, I've had, and you've had, I'm sure, somebody speeding past you and going crazy and then you see them a couple miles up pulled over and you're not going, oh, that's really sad. Dang it, poor guy. And you're also not saying, well, that's really good for the, the driving conditions on this road. I'm glad that that dangerous person was pulled away. No, you're going, yes, you got what you deserve. That's just a small example that we long for justice. We, we believe, and that's, I'm not saying that's bad. That's good. I mean, that's a, I mean, maybe it's not good if you, you know, take that to extremes. But we long for justice. We want to see wrong things made right. That's why we like movies about justice. No one goes to see movies I mean, they don't make movies like this, or maybe they do, but they don't become big hits where the hero is the good, the, the bad guy is the hero. Or if they do make movies like that, things like Breaking Bad and things like that, he's still not the hero. He's a character that we're interested in, that we identify with in some ways, but he's not the hero. I mean, the Oscars right now, I think they're probably about to happen. Thanks for being here. You missed the Oscars, you braved the snow, you... I mean, what else did you wonderful people do? You, you got cut off by people on the way here. Thanks for being here. So the Oscars, I'm sure, and I, I haven't seen many of the movies, but I know there's always movies about justice. Always movies about justice. Because those are the kinds of things that we identify with. Uh, it was either last year or the year before. Django Unchained, which is a Quentin Tarantino movie. And Jamie Foxx goes just madman crazy because his uh, wife a slave she's captured and he just goes on a rampage killing everybody involved and that's a movie huge blockbuster oscar nominated why because it's justice and we long to see that or uh, i know a movie that recently is out i think it's oscar nominated in for some parts of the movie i think uh, gone girl and i won't give away any of the the details in that and i'm not recommending these movies necessarily either i'm just talking about them um but I know that Gone Girl, and I, and I won't tell you everything, but I know that it's about justice. And even the movies that don't end with complete justice being served, it le- we might enjoy a movie where justice isn't served, but it's because it's just intriguing to us when justice isn't served. So here's what I'm saying. We long for justice. We long for justice. On our level, on story level, we long for justice. And here's what that means, though that sounds... Though what I'm about to say sounds weird, here's what that means. We long for hell. Like we long for a place like hell. We long for a place where everything wrong is taken care of. We long for a place where the bad guy doesn't get off the hook. That's in our heart. I'm not saying you long to see people tortured and burned at the stake. or I'm not saying that. But we have a longing 
for a reality where everything wrong is dealt with, where justice is complete, where no one, the guy that cuts you off, the guy that does something horrible, where no one gets off the hook. We long for that reality. If you don't, then that's the definition of a sociopath. If you don't care that wrongs, I mean, if you don't care about the difference between wrong and right, if you, I mean, if that's not something that burns in your heart, then, and you have no moral compass, I mean, that's when that person's dangerous. We long for hell. We long for a place where justice reigns. We long for a place where justice reigns. And that's, that's hell. Now, I'm not saying you have to love the idea of hell. But what I'm saying is there's an impulse in our hearts that longs for some reality where justice will be served to all those that have done wrong. And here's how this helps. And this is what I want to talk about throughout the sermon is how come the doctrine of hell actually helps? Here's how this helps us. I'll I'll read you how, how Paul says it in his letter to the church in Rome. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's what this is saying. Here's how hell helps us. It says this, God is going to bring justice. God is going to bring justice. Which means this, if God is going to bring justice, if God is going to ultimately bring justice, that means a lot of things. First of all, it means that there's things that are actually wrong and evil in this world. That then if God says those are wrong and evil and one day I'm going to bring justice against them, that now we should be a part of seeing those things ended. That's one thing it means. So I mean, how how means that God really, really cares about the wrongs in this world? How means that God is a God of justice that wants to right all wrongs, which should mean then we really care about that too, that we're not passive about that. But it also means that if God is going to judge, if God will avenge, if God will make things right, then as we participate with him, in bringing about justice in our world, that we don't have to be so overburdened that it's all on us to fix everything because we know that God will bring ultimate justice. And it also means this. It means that for those people that have wronged you, you don't have to get them back. And that's what he says. Never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. I mean, just try that out sometimes in your conversations with people. Something does something to you and say, leaving it to the wrath of God. And just, see, I mean, that might be kind of funny. But that's what Paul is saying, right? He's saying, you don't have to bring about your own justice because God's going to bring justice. That's a really encouraging thought. If you've been wronged, if you've been hurt, See, if you don't believe that God is going to bring about justice, then you have got to bring it about. And you will do that with your words. You will do it with your actions. You will want people to pay. 
you will want them to pay the price for what they've done, to receive justice. And you should, because that's a right impulse. But Paul says, we can leave that to God. That we don't have to execute justice on people because God will do it. And here's what that means if you're a Christian. Here's what it means. If you've been wronged, it's wrong. Like God really cares about it. It's wrong and God really cares about it and he will do something about it. And he will do something about it in one of two ways. He will do something about it and that somebody will experience hell or that that person will have their sins forgiven by Jesus' death. So either way, that person will receive death as their punishment. If you've been wronged and you believe that, that frees you from having to execute justice back at them. I know somebody, a friend of mine, that was molested as a child. And they were on the way to the coach that had molested them's house as an adult to burn him alive. And then thought about this, thought about God's justice, and thought, I don't have to do that. He will receive justice. He will receive justice either in, in the cross of Christ, paying for that penalty, or one day in hell. Now, I know that, that that's not necessarily something that hits every single one of you in the heart, but it has real practical everyday life implications where if you believe that God is the one that will bring about justice, you don't have to be seeking that. And you might not even know you're doing that, but we do that all the time with our words and with our actions. This person needs to be paid back for what they've done. And listen, this doesn't mean there's no consequences. Paul's talking about at an individual level. He's not saying that therefore there shouldn't be um, you know, prisons and there shouldn't be consequences for our sin. He's not saying, hey, just eradicate all that and it's a free-for-all and anarchy because, hey, God's going to... He's not saying that. But he's talking about as an individual, I don't have to pay somebody back for what they've done to me. I can hope that Jesus will be paid, that, they, that their sin will be paid for by Jesus, or I can trust that God will deal with it. That there will be justice. And if we just believe in a God of, um, if we just believe in a God of love, if you just have kind of the idea that, well, God's a God of love and he's not like that. If you just have that idea of God, what that means is that that God will comfort you and hug you and be sympathetic towards you, but he won't stick up for you. I want you to think about that. If you just have a concept of God's a God of love and If that's how you view God, he's a God that when you've been hurt will comfort you, but he won't do anything about it. He won't do anything about it. Which then, is that really a God of love? Is it really a God of love that when you've been wronged, just pats you on the shoulder and hugs you, but doesn't do anything about it? What the Bible says is that he's a God of love and justice. Second thing is this. What is hell then? So I think the Bible shows us that a God of love and a God of wrath and justice and punishment can coexist. But, but then what is hell? What is it? And what actually is hell? 
I mean, hell, hell, hell is going to be whatever the worst thing possible is, right? I mean, that's by definition what hell would be. Hell is going to be the worst. So if you were to imagine what's the worst pain you could ever experience, what, what would that be for you? The worst pain that could ever happen. That's what hell is. And, and whatever you believe that is in some way affects your life today. So, I mean, think about um, hell in a non-literal sense. So if you think about, man, it would be hell if blank happened this year. That will in some way affect your life. If you think, man, hell would be uh, me compl- gaining 100 pounds this year. That would be living unhealthy. That would be hell. Then you're going to live your life trying to eat the right things, trying to exercise, trying to... like What you envision hell to be affects how you actually live your life. If you envision hell being, I lose all my friends and nobody likes me, and nobody wants to hang out with me anymore, then that affects your life. Okay, I want to be nice to people. I want to try to hang out with people. I want to try to keep my friends. I want to try to... Whatever you envision the worst thing possible to be is, in some way affects your everyday life. So, so what is hell? What's the worst thing possible? And, and many times when people think about hell and much of the imagery that the Bible uses is fire, right? I mean, we think about fire. But I think, and others as well, that fire is getting us off the hook too easy. I don't think anybody is going to burn alive in hell. I don't think there's going to be fire in hell. And, and let, me, let me explain. Um, and just so you don't think I'm a heretic, let me quote somebody. Um, and this, here's this quote. Reformers such as John Calvin and Martin Luther maintained that the fiery passages regarding hell should be taken as metaphorical. Calvin said, we may conclude from many passages of Scripture that eternal fire is a metaphorical expression. Luther said that it's not very important whether or not one pictures hell as it is commonly portrayed and described. Even today, many conservative theologians, for instance, J.I. Packer states, do not try to imagine what it is like to be in hell. The mistake is to take such pictures as physical descriptions when in fact they are imagery symbolizing realities far worse than the symbols themselves. So, I think hell, fire, is a metaphor. But I don't think that means we go a sigh of relief. I think, I mean, when you're trying to think of something, you know, huge and infinite, you try to grasp something smaller to explain it. So, I think burning alive is probably better than what hell actually is. So, what is hell? I mean, what's, what, what's the worst thing that we could imagine? What, what's the worst possible reality? And here's... Let's look at a story that Jesus tells describing hell. Here's a parable from Luke chapter 16. And here's Jesus telling a story about hell. And this is a parable. This is not like a historical fact. So I think sometimes in parables it's, it's hard to know what exactly is made up and what is a, what's an illustration to make a point and what is this is exactly what something is. But, here's, but I think we can see at least a few things from this parable of what hell is. So here's what Jesus says. 
there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, hell, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able And none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. That's just a description for all the the Bible and Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So we see a few things about what hell is, about the ingredients of hell. And here's the first thing that many commentators have noticed about this passage. This is the only parable that Jesus tells where the character has a name in it. It's the only parable Jesus tells where one of the main characters has a name in it. So if you think about the prodigal son, his name is not first name prodigal, last name son, right? Or the, the, the poor widow or the, I mean, these, these are not names. So sorry if you're having children and you're planning on naming them prodigal or something. These are just, they're just descriptors of who they are. But in this story, in this parable, it's the only story where one of the characters has a real name, Lazarus. So why, why? Why did he give one of the characters a name? And what many commentators have said is they think it's to show a contrast between Lazarus and the rich man. So see, this guy's name is just rich man. But this guy's name is Lazarus. You would think in the story, if this guy had a name, that this guy would have a name. But why? Well, it's to show that there's a contrast between them. To show us part of what hell is part of the ingredients of what makes up hell, what makes hell, hell. So here's something that we talk about a lot and that the Bible talks about a lot, that sin is when we build an identity on something other than God. It's when we get our sense of worth, where we get our sense of value, what we really live for instead of God. For the rich man... That was riches. That's why his name is the rich man. That his identity was in his riches, in his wealth. So what is hell? Hell is when we choose an identity apart from God. And we do that forever. So so think about this, okay? What would happen tomorrow in your life? What would happen tomorrow in your life if you based 
your sense of value and worth, your sense of, I mean, if, if what was really most important to you above all things was your career, what would happen to you tomorrow if that took place? Probably nothing. Maybe, but probably nothing. But what about 10 years from now? 10 years from now, if you lived as if career was most important, it was everything. You could probably start to think, well, if I live my life like that for 10 years, there'd be some erosion. There'd be some social problems. There'd be some internal problems. There'd be some anxiety. There'd be some distress. There'd be some, I mean, I I may become too obsessed with money or this. I might lose some friends. I might become a workaholic. I might have an ulcer from stress. I might, I mean, if you think about 10 years, but what about if you did that for 100 years? What about 1,000 years? I mean, what if you just kept living with something else as the core of your identity for 10,000 years, for, for 100,000, forever? What if you just went on and on and on and on and the core of your identity was something other than God? That's what hell is. See, hell is our freely chosen identity apart from God, going on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, think about the kind of person you would become if that were the case. Think about the kind of person that you would become. C.S. Lewis says it like this, and this is actually Tim Keller quoting C.S. Lewis because he had some of his thoughts to it. But here's how C.S. Lewis puts it, how Keller says that C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way about hell. He says, and here's quotes from C.S., Hell begins with a grumbling mood, yourself still distinct from it, perhaps even criticizing it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on and on forever like a machine. First, you are a Mary or John who grumbles. Then you become John or Mary, the grumbler. See how it moves more and more into the center of your identity. Finally, you just become a grumble. You can almost see it with some people, even in this life. Sometimes you see a fire and it's nothing but ashes. But you know if you blow the ashes away, underneath it all, there are some hot coals and you can get the fire going again. Tim Keller slash C.S. Lewis. See, that's, that's what hell is. It's our identity without God going on forever and ever and ever. So here, here's something to think about then. How are you adding those ingredients to your life now? See, we, we may not be in hell right now. We're not. Maybe, maybe you feel like that. We're, we're not in hell right now. But can we grumble? I mean, how are we adding these, how are we beginning now to add the ingredients of hell into our life such that if we did that forever, that would be hell? See, if we think that hell is torment and pain and torture and flames burning your flesh until it all falls off the skeleton and then somehow it gets back on there and then burns again and that's just hell forever, forever, 
then you're, I mean, that doesn't have much of an effect right now. But if what you think hell is, is an identity apart from God going on forever and ever, then, then you start to go, man, am I, am I bringing hell into my life now? I mean, if that's what hell is, if that's what the worst thing possible is, am I bringing that into my life now? And see, this guy, the rich guy, he didn't think he was doing that. I mean, he, he thought life was great. He was eating, what did Jesus say, sumptuous meals every day and wearing purple linens. And he, he thought he was doing good things for himself every day. But that trajectory forever is what hell is. Second thing that we see from this passage, what is hell? What, what are the ingredients of hell? It's not just some identity chosen apart from God, but it's being absorbed in ourselves. It's being self-absorbed. See, ultimately, it's not just that we choose God or some other identity. It's that we choose God or ourselves. What's interesting when you read this passage is that the rich man dies. And then even when he's in hell, he's ordering people around. He tells Abraham, Hey, Abraham, go get Lazarus and go get Lazarus to serve me. He, I mean, he doesn't even, there's just a, there's a, such a self-absorption that he had in his earthly life that going on into hell is just continuing on where he still views himself as I am the one in power. It's all about me. I'm in hell and I want people to serve me. I want Lazarus to serve me. Abraham, I want you to serve me. There's a self-absorption. See, one of the ingredients of hell, part of what hell is, is a consumption with self. Seeking to be served. Building our life for us. So think about that. If that's what hell is, are you bringing that into your life now? So let's just get practical. If you think about the last few months. How many people have served you? And people can serve you in different ways. They might serve you um, with a word of encouragement. They might serve you with um, actually helping you with something tangibly, practically. They might, I mean, so people can serve you with words. They can serve you with actions. I mean, how many people have served you, helped you? And, and then think about how many people have you served? And not that it's just, I mean, the, the, the point of that isn't that it's this, okay, I have five people serve me, I have to serve five people. But the point of it is when you look at your life, the person that is self-absorbed, which is an ingredient of hell, is always viewing other people through the lens of what can they do for me? How can they help me? How can I benefit from them? Or it can also be the negative side. How many people do you complain about? How many, when you think about people, how often do you think about what can they do for me? How can they help me? How can they, why aren't, or maybe it's why aren't they doing this to me? Why aren't they help? Why aren't they? See, the person that is self-absorbed is always thinking through the lens of self. What does this do for me? How does this help me? What's in it for me? How do I benefit? They're not thinking about giving of themselves. That's the opposite. 
So the rich man, before, that's how he lived his life. And even in the hell, it's, hell is self-absorption forever. Just going on and on and on and on. You also see that this guy blames God. I mean, he, he, he says this thing to Abraham where he says, hey, if you went and told my, my brothers, then maybe they would repent. And so if you just did that, then it would be okay which is really a veiled blaming of God, saying if he would have done that to me, I would have been okay. So really, I'm, I'm in here because of God. I'm a victim. My family is victims, and I'm a victim. I mean, see, the self-absorbed person looks at themselves as a victim. People are against me. People are after me. People have done this to me. The self-absorbed person is always viewing themselves as a victim. Self-pity. Paul Miller, an author who wrote a book called The Praying Life, which is very popular, and then another book called A Loving Life. In the book A Loving Life says this, he says that self-pity is compassion turned inward, which is self-absorption, right? That you're I want to love myself. I want to take care. I have compassion for myself. But then what that does is it cuts us off from loving others, which is why the famous author Dostoevsky said that hell is the suffering of being unable to love. Listen to that. Not hell is being unloved. Hell is the suffering of being unable to love. Because you have become so self-absorbed. You are thinking of yourself. You are for yourself. You are at the center. Everything's about you. That's hell. Forever. So again, how are you putting that into your life now? See, the person that does this, and the rich guy, as he lived his life like this, he thought, I'm adding heaven to my life. Right? Right? I mean, when he was living his life and doing his thing, he thought, this is, I'm, I am looking out for me. But in reality, he was not bringing heaven into his life. He was bringing hell into his life. Here's how another author puts this. Peter Kreeft, he says that Satan's primary, listen, listen to this. I think this is powerful. Satan's primary lie that deceives humanity keeps it in spiritual infancy and causes more suffering than anything else. Okay, so don't read further. Hang on. So, if you wonder, what would keep me in spiritual infancy? What would keep me immature? What would keep me... What, what causes more suffering in my life than anything else? I mean, if you think that you're suffering right now, if you feel like you're not growing right now, is the lie that selfishness is fun and unselfishness is not. The origin of sin and suffering is faith in Satan's lie, which began in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, that life and joy come from disobedience to God, from my will be done. At the far end of that lies hell, meaning going on like that forever and ever and ever. See, the rich man lived his life about himself. 
he lived his life about himself and would have thought, this is good. Selfishness is fun. Thinking about myself is good. It's fun. That's what I most need is to think more about myself. That's the lie that most causes suffering, most deceives humanity, and most keeps us in spiritual infancy. That life and joy come from disobedience to God, from my will be done. You're not in hell right now, but are you flirting with that? Are you flirting with hell? Are you entertaining hell? Maybe without even knowing it? Hell, the ingredients of hell, is this forever. Finally, what is hell? Last ingredient that we see in this story. Hell is being away from God's loving presence. Hell is being away from, I mean, he, here he is and he talks about this chasm between them. See, what we see in this picture of hell that Jesus gives to us is that it's a life. He was the rich man before he died, and he was the rich man after he died. It's a life with an identity apart from God forever. It's being absorbed in ourself forever. And it's being away from God's loving presence forever. See, if, I mean, if, if we think that the worst thing possible is being burned alive, that affects how we live. But if you think that the worst thing possible is being self-absorbed and having your identity apart from God and being away from God's presence, that affects. You go, man, if that is an ingredient of hell, I don't want to start adding more and more of that to my life. I mean, if, if hell is being away from God's presence forever, that means heaven is being in God's presence forever. I mean, do you, do you think of that as hell? Do you think that being away from God's presence forever would be hell? If so, I mean, how does that affect your life now? So the final question then is this. Why would a loving God send people to hell? And here's what the rich man missed. See, in the end of the story, the rich man says, look, if you, if you would just, if, if, if you could send, you know, if you could resurrect from the dead and go tell my brothers, then they would turn away from sin. Then they would repent. That's all they need. They just need someone to raise from the dead. And, and Abraham says, no. If they didn't believe, if they didn't believe the Bible, they're not going to believe someone raising from the dead. And, and here's what the point of that is. For the rich man, again, he's blaming God and he's viewing it as they just didn't have enough information. But what Abraham says is, no, it's it's a heart issue. That someone that just magic and somebody coming out and raising from the dead and saying, see, I proved to you it's true. That wouldn't change their hearts. That if they weren't listening to the scriptures, they're not going to listen to something that's just this powerful sign. And, and that was true. Because, and Jesus telling this story knew what would happen. Jesus rose from the dead. And that didn't mean that all of a sudden everybody that was his opponent, everybody that had resisted him, all of a sudden said, okay. Because it's a heart issue. And so, 
That's, this is what the rich man missed. He thought, I just needed more information. I just needed a bigger sign. I just needed God to do something. And, and Abraham's point is, nah, if you didn't listen here, you won't listen here because it's your heart that is closed off. Because it's self-absorbed. Because it's focused on self. It's not open to God. It's closed its door. This is why Scottish pastor George MacDonald said that the main principle of hell is, I am my own. I am my own. And C.S. Lewis said that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. He said that hell is the biggest monument to human freedom. See, what all these things are saying is in our heart, there is a resistance to saying, God, I'm yours. So what could lead us there? Why would a loving God send people to hell? And here's the truth. The truth is that a loving God does not send people to hell, but that a loving God sent himself to hell for us. And, and here's, here's what I mean, and here's, here's what we've seen. Hell is absence from God's presence forever. Do you know who experienced absence from God's presence? Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you've ever had somebody leave you and you felt that pain, that is nothing compared to an eternal God that had perfect relationship with his father that then experienced on the cross that cut off. That's hell. I mean, hell is the absence from God's presence. And God did not send people to hell. God himself experienced hell on the cross. Why? For us. That way we wouldn't have to go to hell. That way we wouldn't have to experience absence from God's presence. But what else is hell? Hell is our identity apart from God going on forever and ever and ever. And you know what Paul says about Jesus? It says that he became sin. Second Corinthians 5, Paul says that he became sin. He, Jesus, he that knew no sin became sin. That's a weird way to put it, but this is what he's talking about. Jesus took on all of our... Jesus became the rich man, the anxious man, the greedy man, the complaint, the grumble. Jesus became that. Jesus took on an identity apart from God. Why? That way we wouldn't have to. So what is hell? It's our identity apart from God. It's absence from God's presence. On the cross, that's exactly what Jesus did. So a loving God doesn't send people to hell. A loving God actually went into hell for us. He experienced hell so that we wouldn't have to. To show us his great love. To become for us the substitute. So when we think about why does a loving God allow people to go to hell? Why does a loving God send people to hell? The first thing is this. Justice 
and love can coexist. The second thing is that hell is not what we usually think of. It's absence from God's presence. It's identity apart from him. It's self-absorption. And yet we see that God himself took all of that on so that we wouldn't have to. That's what should change our hearts to see, man, God, look, here's what I want you to see if you're a Christian and maybe you haven't thought about it like this before. Jesus didn't just die for you. He went to hell for you. Jesus didn't just, he didn't just go to the cross for you and experience physical pain. Jesus went to hell for you. That's a different kind of love. And when we take communion, that's exactly what we remember. That Jesus had his body broken, that he had his blood shed. But even more than that, he had absence from the presence of God. And he literally became sin so that we would not have to. So that we could have God's presence forever and have life with him forever. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you would not just die for us. We thank you, God, that you did die for us. We thank you that you um, did the greatest sacrifice any, any human being could ever do, that you gave us your life, that you gave up your life for us. But you did more than that, God. You literally experienced hell. For us. That is a greater love than than any of us can fathom. That you were willing to experience hell. Because of your great love for us. So thank you for that. Let that lead our hearts to not live by the ingredients of hell that say, I am my own. But Lord, let us. Uh, use that on our hearts to see that we are yours and that that's a good place to be. Your name, Jesus.